Yeah, Psalm 23 has been called the most famous Hebrew poem of all time, the most well-known of all 150 entries in the ancient songbook of Israel. This familiarity with Psalm 23 is sort of a curious thing to me because I don't think it's limited only to Christian and Jewish believers. Seems like you can walk up to almost anyone who has even nominal religious background and say, finish this sentence, the Lord is my, and in most cases, they can fill in the blank. So recognizing that this passage of scripture is so well known, I decided to ask a group of people this past week two specific questions about their familiarity with it. First, I wondered, where do you remember first learning this psalm? And secondly, what associations do you most naturally make? What most organically comes to mind when you hear these words recited? And strangely, of the 15 to 20 people that I asked these questions of, they almost all gave me identical answers to both of the questions. When I asked them about where they first became familiar with Psalm 23, every one of them gave me an answer centered around childhood. So they said Sunday school or vacation Bible school at the instruction of a parent or a grandparent. One person recalled a small book that sat on her bedside table all through her childhood years. She would leaf through it every night. It was just filled with pictures. And as she turned the pages, the person putting her to bed would recite the words of Psalm 23 as a sort of narration to what she was looking at and a form of bedtime prayer. This made me wonder, what is it about this particular psalm that makes us teach it over so many others to children to memorize. Maybe it's because it's a somewhat uh, short passage of scripture, or perhaps there's something to the theory that the particular poetic form of this psalm is especially accessible to us to memorize, even children. I don't know that we know the answer to that question for certain, but it does seem that we know Psalm 23. So I went on then and I asked the second question of that group saying, okay, so what associations do you most naturally make when you hear these words? And again, I was astounded by the similarities of their answers because almost every one of them told me that the first thing that came to mind was a memory of a loved one who had passed away. We read that psalm at my grandma Jane's funeral or uh, one person told me they distinctly remembered standing at the bedside with their entire family, the bedside of her brother, reciting this psalm together as he took his final breaths. I think I understand this because the language of Psalm 23 is certainly that of assurance. We have come to rely upon these words to provide for us calm and comfort in seasons of disruption and specifically seasons of grief and mourning. I myself could think of a number of funerals I've attended just in the past few years where this scripture has been read. But there was a little bit of a disconnect for me in the answers that I was given to these questions. Because on one hand, it seemed like what we were saying is that we teach this psalm or we learn this psalm as children, but we most closely associate it with death. And that was just a curious enough thing for me to drive me back into the text this week. And I discovered something I'd never seen before. So if you have your Bibles, take a look at that psalm in its entirety. 
Because what I saw was that with the exception of that final verse, this psalm is written in the present tense, not reflexively. In other words, these words were not penned by someone reflecting on a life well lived or someone pining away for a day in the future when something will be different than it is now. These were words written as an active and present proclamation of what is true and happening here and now. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Versus the Lord has been my shepherd or one day eventually in the afterlife, then I will have the things I need. And so while many of us will most naturally associate this psalm with this really wonderful assurance that we as Christians have of what's to come in the life hereafter, what I'd like you to consider today is that that confidence is available and accessible to us here and now, today. Psalm 23 is a psalm for the living. It's a psalm of confidence and contentment and one that should shape our outlook on and our understanding of each and every day that we've been given to walk on this earth. So I hope that's the reason that we teach this psalm to our children or why we learn it early on in our Christian journeys because it's intended to frame our lives today and to provide for us this foundation, a sense of certainty in whatever we may counter in the journey ahead of us. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. We know these words quite well, but the challenge that they presented to me this past week as I studied this scripture was that I need to move from knowing them to living them. And what I realized is that you don't have to dig too deeply into this text to begin seeing why that can be so difficult. Right here in the first verse, there's a distinct challenge for those of us who live in our modernized, urbanized culture, and that is that we don't know a whole heck of a lot about shepherds or sheep. So right from the get-go, there's a, a stretch, a discrepancy in our understanding of the dominant metaphor that the psalmist is giving us to understand what he's saying. Now, we said it here earlier, today's Family Sunday, we're celebrating, our kids are here with us, so I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of engaging, I know that's a scary thing for some of you, but I'll play the card, do it for the children. And I want you to turn to a young person near you. So we're going to say that's anyone under 18. Sorry, teens, if that's offensive to you, but there's a lot of adults in here and we need to widen our candidate pool. Turn to a young person and I want you to have a brief conversation with them. Ask them the age-old question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if you can't find a child, just ask the adult next to you because we're always asking ourselves that anyway, all right? So what do you want to be when you grow up? Ready, go. <clears throat> 
All right, settle down now. It's church, right? So back as you were. All right, I'm going to ask those of you who ask the questions now to serve as our reporters. So by show of hands, anyone talk to a child who desires to be a teacher? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about anybody talk to somebody who wants to be a doctor or a nurse? Yeah, good. All right, now obviously we don't have time to go through all of the aspirations of the young people here, so I'm going to bring this activity to a screeching halt, I have a feeling. Uh, Anybody say they desire to be a shepherd? Yeah, probably not real surprising, right? Because even here in our fairly rural Midwestern environment, the industry of sheep herding or shepherding isn't exactly what you'd call robust. Maybe you know a few people who raise some sheep for the 4-H fair or who keep them on their hobby farm. We had friends who did this a number of years ago and they had this big white fluffy sheep that followed around their toddler like a golden retriever. It was one of the strangest things I'd ever seen. But the actual vocation of shepherding is sort of hard for us to relate to in our post, postmodern Western world context. And yet David, who we believe to have been the author of this psalm, knew the role and responsibilities of shepherding quite well. He was given the assignment of overseeing the flocks of his father as a young boy. And that would have been a very common task to give the youngest son of a family during this day and age. But what's interesting to me about this is that David held all sorts of responsibilities in his lifetime. He had any number of roles. He was um, a soldier, a victor, a king, a father, a husband, a refugee. So he had any number of of experiences upon which to draw from and any number of associations that he could have made regarding his understanding of God. And yet here in these words, he chose to connect his understanding of and his experience with God to that of a shepherd. Now, shepherding was a fairly common vocation at this point in time. Land wasn't owned back then the way that it is today. So sheep could roam about freely, not being worried about getting off of their owner's property like we might enclose them in a pen or some sort of a corral today. Freedom to roam meant that they needed someone to serve as their overseer, someone who understood the terrain that they would travel in and could navigate its challenges and its resources, someone who could account that each one of them was present at each stage of the journey and who would take them to resources like food and water, places to rest, and general direction as they roamed throughout the open countryside. This guiding work of the shepherd was so well understood in this day and age that it wasn't uncommon for people to refer to anyone put in a position of leadership over others as a shepherd. Of course, that backfired sometimes because as is the case today, they had bad leaders sometimes too. But the general assumption was that if you were appointed to or accepted and accepted a position of leadership over other people, then your heart was bent towards providing for them what was best for them. So David ascribed to the Lord in Psalm 23 this title of shepherd. And in so doing, he was articulating his understanding of God's authority over him, God's great care for him, and also asserting an understanding of his need to be led. Essentially, David was calling himself a sheep. 
which I think you could do worse, right? You could call yourself worse things. Sheep aren't the most hideous creatures in the animal kingdom. In David's day, in fact, sheep were central to almost every part of life, whether it was farming, food, clothing, shelter, trade, even worship practices. And so this likely explains why such an investment was made by shepherds to care for these creatures at this time. It was not a small job because sheep can be a handful. Some people think they're just flat out dumb creatures. They don't have a clear sense of how dangerous it is for them to be apart, separate, and alone. In fact, they don't realize that they're in trouble until they've gotten a far distance away from their flock, and then they go into this instinctual mode of hiding. They'll jump under a bush, thinking that will camouflage them. Not a bad idea. But then they begin bleeding over and over, louder and louder, again and again, trying to signal to their flock and to their shepherd, here I am, here I am, come find me. The problem is that also tells every predator in the area where they are as well. So you might have an argument that these aren't exactly the sharpest tools in the shed. There are others, however, who will argue that sheep are far more intelligent creatures than we give them credit for. They say sheep are connected animals, meaning that they have this keen sense of identity and the ability to attach themselves quickly to their flock, their tribe, and their shepherd. I read the story um, of a young shepherd boy. He had a very small flock of sheep, just seven to eight animals, that were sequestered by the government in the riots that took place during the Great Revolt of Palestine in the 1930s. And the story goes that as the conflict continued, at some point, people were allowed to buy back the possessions they'd had sequestered, but of course they had to purchase them at an extremely inflated cost. By some chance, the boy came up with the money and he went to the place where the animals were being held. It was an enormous corral, a pen that was acres and acres wide. And he paid the money for his sheep. There were thousands of animals gathered there. The government officials took his money and said, now it's your responsibility to go find your animals. And then they laughed at him as he made his way through the gates of the corral and began chanting a particular melody over and over and over again. But their snickers quickly turned to amazement as they watched from further than the eye could see and every corner of this massive enclosure, these eight animals make their way to the shepherd boy's side, recognizing his voice. My hunch is that sheep are both intelligent and unintelligent creatures. <laughs> that perhaps like us, they have their moments both ways. But perhaps more importantly to David's words here, in describing that sheep-shepherd relationship is the fact that sheep have the innate inability to protect themselves when they're in situations of danger. Think about it. Sheep have no claws. I did learn that they have eight teeth, but they're all in their bottom jaw. Probably not real effective for thwarting off enemies, don't you think? They're not particularly fast animals. They don't kick. And in the greater scheme of the animal kingdom, they're relatively small. 
So whether they're intelligent or unintelligent, you cannot argue that these are not dependent creatures. They absolutely need someone to protect them, both from the elements of nature as well as predators who are seeking to devour them. The psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd, acknowledging his own need for such protection and such guidance, recognizing that amidst a world of so much uncertainty, so many threats and dangers, he was dependent upon one who knows and guides and defends and provides. And then having established that connection between himself and the Lord, that relationship of sheep and shepherd, he goes on to make this bold statement of confidence and assurance in this relationship, I have all that I need. And that's where the second challenge came for me in moving from knowing this psalm to living it. My mom is a retired writing professor and a poet, and she recently said the astute phrase, language is squishy. (laughs) Because if you were reciting the psalm alongside Avery as we watched that video, you might have gotten hung up right in that first verse. If you learned the King James Version as a child, you might have said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you learned a different version, you might have said, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But it seems to me that this particular translation, I have all that I need, is pertinent for us, again, living today in our modernized Western culture, where sometimes, just maybe, we get a little confused at the difference between a want and a need. When my kids were in elementary school, we were trying to remember what year it was, but I think it was around first grade. They both came home with a homework assignment, you know, big first grade homework. And they had a worksheet. I have created one here. It was a piece of paper that had a column that said needs and wants. And their assignment was to bring home this envelope filled with pictures and to have a discussion with our family about which items truly were wants and which were needs. This brought about spirited conversation in our home, to say the least, a bit of weeping and gnashing of teeth as we tried to explain to them which things really were needs and which were wants. So again, because we have kids in the room today, I thought we would try this out, all right? So I'm gonna show you an item and I want you to just blurt out, is it a need or a want, all right? Again, do it for the children, participate. Here we go, first item, food. Okay, pretty, pretty unanimous. This one, house or shelter? Good job, like that, enthusiasm. Next item, sneakers. Oh, little varied answers there. This is water, we colored it blue, so water. Okay, next item, a cupcake. Oh, that was a weed, somebody said weed. How about clothing? Okay, and last but not least, coffee. Ah. It's a blurry line sometimes, isn't it? I mean, on one hand, you could argue that yes, of course, food is a necessity, but unfortunately, you're hard pressed to argue that a cupcake is a need. Clothing in our culture is definitely a need, but when you start to dissect the specific type, fancy sneakers, I had a really hard time putting water in the needs column and coffee in the wants category. We're not gonna spend much time debating this today. The point is, I think David is reminding us here that if we declare the Lord to be our shepherd, 
then we trust and know that he will provide for us the things we truly need. Even if we don't always understand what those needs are, And if we really believe this, then when we encounter moments of anxiety and worry and uncertainty, we might have to stop and recalibrate our understanding of what those needs are and trust again that God, our shepherd, knows the terrain that we're walking here. He knows the journey. He's the one who's mapped it out. He's well aware of what we are and will yet encounter and endure, and he knows the path to where we need to be. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. So while Psalm 23 is one we know to be sure, it's a difficult one to live. I've struggled this week because if you go deeper into that Psalm, there is so much there. I could not get past the first verse. But in those words, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need, we find a gateway to understanding the rest of what David was trying to convey here. So if we want to move beyond knowing it and begin living it, then we have to consider what it would look like to walk each day in confidence of this declaration. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. I wonder how my life would look differently if I employed these words in an active and present, everyday kind of way? How differently would we engage our days that are so often fraught with worry and anxiety and hardship if we understood and lived into the assurance of this truth for anything that we might now be walking through or yet come upon? Green pastures, still waters, dark valleys, banquet tables, even the presence of our enemies? How would each and every situation or season that we journey into be different if we realized that the shepherd was the one leading us there? Because it's a wonderful thing about shepherds, you guys. They lead from in front. They don't drive from behind like cattle. And what that means for us is that they never send us into something that they don't know yet themselves. They walk ahead and they lead us even sometimes on the rugged paths and into dark places because it's there that the shepherd knows we will find the thing we truly, truly need. We just often don't consider that the righteous path of God sometimes goes through the darkest valley. But even Even though that's true, we don't have to be afraid of those places or those seasons because we know that the one leading us there finds his greatest joy in seeing us thrive. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. How would that perspective change, that shift from worry and concern or envy or greed to contentment or assurance help us to move beyond knowing the psalm to living it? What if we never feared that we wouldn't have enough, but instead lived with a mindset of abundance and trust, completely aware that the shepherd who is leading us is in absolute control? 